Bet you wish you were here. Hey guys, welcome back to part two of the Republicanism section of my podcast, which is called Wish You Were Here. I don't know how often I should say that. I've never done this before. I'm 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 drowning, not waving. But it's been a it's been a rick roller, it's been a cool time. I've really enjoyed it. This interview that you're about to hear is from, I suppose, one of the coolest most fun periods of the whole lot during a two or three day I can't remember exactly you know yourself now two or three day stay in um, West Belfast where I was treated like a little prince brought around the place I walked the legs off my next guest I'm sure must have just wrecked his head <laughs> for long periods but he never showed it although one time I was in his kitchen he did come in the door and he just looked me in the eyes and he goes are you still here <laughs> so it was that kind of period the man is an out-and-out gentleman. I would consider him a uh, friend. I was going to say pal, but I think pal is a bit is a bit wacky. He's extremely eloquent, and actually, on that point, quick another another quick segue to you a murder for them in West Belfast. My experience: every single person you meet has been to prison, and is also then very well read. That's just the thing that combines all of them in my experience. Very well read on republicanism, obviously, and its international context. But just world literature as well. Like everyone is smart, is well read and knows their stuff. And I suppose all I'm saying is, if you're listening and you're struggling to do more reading and you want to get into it, have you considered prison? Anyway, as the fellow says, back to Danny. He is a writer who lives in West Belfast. In the 80s, he was National Director of Publicity for Sinn Féin. Former Republican volunteer and prisoner. He's a well-respected figure in the Republican movement. And we sat down in his house, as I say, after me tormenting him for days on end. We covered a lot, to be fair to us, from the fact, and this this is a really important point, and it comes up with Ian Malcolm as well later in this podcast series, the fact that the protocol is kind of working. Two things on that. One, that's kind of a threat to unification, arguably, right? And, you know, you daren't say it, whisper it like, but that's definitely a point. And second of all, how the DUP then are allowing themselves to die on the hill of protocol protests is just that bit more mind-boggling um, when it's the thing that seems to be working for the actual idea of NI at all. Anyway, we touch on that. I ask him all the same old Brexit questions that you're purple in the face from listening to at this point. And he tells me a couple of very funny stories about being incarcerated. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Danny Morrison. Boom, 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 boom. I'm absolutely honoured to be with Danny Morrison in his home today and just to say Danny to you thank you so much sincerely I'd like to, I'd, like, <laughs> I'd like to put on record that I've dragged Danny around the streets and he's <laughs> he's been my minder and guide around Belfast and I've been very touched by it all jokes aside so so thank you Danny and first thing I'd like to ask you is when people think of Danny Morrison what do they think of? Well, of course, it depends upon the audience. From the very good end of things, my family, and then my friends and relatives, and the community that I live in in West Belfast, and then going on to Nicholas community across the north, and then the more distant you are from Belfast, I suppose, from an establishment point of view, the more hostility there would be. So, for example, I would have been particularly demonised in the British media for a variety of reasons because I was the national spokesperson for Sinn Féin and even if we called a press conference about unemployment or we called a press conference about transport or the environment and health inevitably the first question asked was about the IRA so in this way 
the mainstream media actually turned us into against we weren't for it like we didn't balk at it but they actually turned us into proxy spokespersons for the ira and that facilitated margaret thatcher bringing in the broadcasting ban in 1988 in which we were banned from the media the way also our elected representatives our mps were banned from the media in the 26 counties throughout the bulk of the conflict. So that's how people would perceive me. I, you know, I made a statement after the hunger strike in which I encouraged a dual strategy within the Republican movement up until then. All activity was concentrated on the IRA's armed struggle. And after the election victory of Bobby Sands and from Manasseh Throne and Kieran Doherty and Kevin Monaghan, both of whom were respectively elected to parliaments in Dublin and London and who died on hunger strike and who were from Belfast, I advocated that we should adopt an electoral strategy and I summed it up you know, a little soundbite of the arm light in one hand and the ballot paper in the other. And that subsequently became the strategy of the Republican movement until we reached a stage where the British government and some members of the Dublin government, although reluctantly, began to engage with the Republican movement. That led to the ceasefire, that led to the peace process, that led to the Good Friday Agreement. And as part of the Good Friday Agreement, the European Union were central to anchoring and recognising that. It was European funds, peace funds, uh, peace one, peace two, peace three, that came in and supported communities coming out of conflict, that funded the rebuilding of hundreds of roads and bridges that had been blown up by the British army between north and the south, and which further isolated the nationalist community in the north, and I presume produced a lot of fear in people in the south of Ireland, you know, who feared the militarisation of the border. So the, the European Union played a very important part and contributed to seeding the peace process and embedding the peace process. And that's why, of course, in 2016, when David Cameron gave the British public a referendum, an un- uninformed referendum with a very simple choice, we recognised the dangers at that stage. And I supported Sinn Féin's campaign against Brexit and for Ireland, North and South, to remain inside the European Union. At this point in the interview, I ask Danny to differentiate between Irish republicanism and the republicanism that we get in, say, the United States of America. I'm inserting myself into the podcast and telling you in this weird way because the way I asked him that question live was so ham-fisted, I'd be absolutely allergic for you to hear it. Thank you. Well, of course... The demand by the colonists in North America in the 18th century for independence and, you know, no taxation without representation, which led to the War of Independence and the establishment of a republic in North America. The ideas and some of the intellectual thinkers behind that, for example, Thomas Paine, heavily influenced Irish nationalists. And as we get our republicanism from North America, but also from the French Revolution. So it's a combination of a mixture of those thoughts about liberty and fraternity and equality, which turned Irish nationalists into republicans. And the first republican rebellion in Ireland was 1798. Thousands died and was brutally repressed by Britain, which then closed down any any representation. At that stage, the Protestant population, who were the settler part of the settler uh, colony as a result of the plantation, they were allowed to vote and had a parliament in Ireland. But even the British government closed down it and created what was called the Act of Union. And that's where, in 1801, the term United Kingdom comes from. So that's where our republicanism comes from. Now, of course, in the subsequent centuries, there was a great diversification in the whole concept. 
you know, in North America. I mean, when people would say, but Ronald Reagan's a Republican. Are you saying you're a Republican like Ronald Reagan? No, it's different. I mean, French Republican is different. A German Republican is different. An Irish Republican, I think the connotation with an Irish Republican is much more than just a political description. Mm. It has a connotation of resistance to it historically because, of course, we haven't established total sovereignty in Ireland. That struggle is ongoing. Fortunately, it's going through a political phase. And that's what, that, I mean, no one is losing their lives in the struggle. And it's a result of successful political activity that Irish Republicans have brought the issue of Irish unity right up onto the agenda, where now the establishment has to recognise it and react to it. So that's the, the difference. Also, Irish Republicans, certainly of my generation, and I, I date my republicanism back to the 60s, I was influenced by the American Civil Rights Movement and the anti-war movement in America, and I became involved in politics from about the age of 15 or 16. So the, another component of our republicanism is our internationalism. We recognise in other peoples the same state as we ourselves experienced at whatever stage in our history of occupation. So therefore, we showed solidarity with the ANC. Their prisoners, Nelson Mandela, whenever they went on a hunger strike on Robben Island, they referred to it as a Sands, named after Bobby Sands. Similar, the Palestinians, we identify with them. They were promised, like the Irish people were promised, if you contribute to the First World War, we will give you independence. Palestinians and the Arab nations in the Middle East were promised that by Britain. And instead, of course, Britain secretly through the Balfour Declaration, a secret letter to the Zionist organization, promised them, they promised the Jewish immigrants that they would have this land as if it, it was in England's gift to give away. And look at the conflict that has created. It's an unresolved conflict, massive injustice, massive oppression, and it's a disgrace. So therefore we show we showed our solidarity with the Palestinians. That's ongoing, that's real. Jerry Adams has visited Palestine many, many times. We have fraternal relations with the Palestinian. And also Sinn Féin has put down a motion in the Irish Parliament demanding recognition of the Palestinian state. And when Sinn Féin comes into government, they're going to realise that and make that official and then hopefully move other European countries down that line. So we showed solidarity with the Vietnamese people in their struggle and similarly with the Sandinistas in Central America and also there is a, a long relationship with the people of Cuba and the injustice of that embargo. So I know many, even Irish Republican sympathisers in the United States, some of whom, for example, would be a very strong presence amongst police in America, part of a tradition of Irish people joining police. So there'd be a very, you know, a, a, a regimented law and order attitude there. And a lot of those people in North America can sympathise with the Irish struggle, even that component of it, which involved an armed struggle, whilst having problems with our internationalism. Because, of course, they the, the parameters of their politics domestically and internationally is circumscribed by the social, economic and cultural conditions of North America. Excellent. As a Republican, and even though Brexit undoubtedly has affected lives and businesses in, in the north of Ireland, but as somebody who's worked towards Irish reunification their whole career, was there an aspect of it where you were thinking, you know, this is a gift horse? No, I never considered that. After the referendum, my wife, who's a Sinn Féin activist, was out campaigning against Brexit, leafleting, etc., uh, knocking on doors. And the referendum in the north of Ireland was like 56 almost 57% mm. in favour of remaining in the European Union. Like the people of Scotland, that was totally ignored. And in ignoring the wishes of the people of Scotland, the British government 
has perhaps unintentionally triggered a whole second debate around Scottish independence. And of course the Unionists in the North have an affinity with, with Scotland. It's very deep-rooted because a lot of their antecedents were part of the original planters came from, from Scotland to here and as many Scottish surnames in, in Northern Irish politics. But I viewed it as a disaster. When I woke up the next morning, I knew we were in trouble because the danger was that, and I understood that unless Britain did a deal with the European Union, which kept them within the trade descriptions, the single market, the standards, for example, on goods, because the European Union was going to protect its standards. I mean, it wasn't just going to hand a gift to the British government where they could have the advantage of opting out of the European Union and trading with the European Union on equal terms as all the rest of them who are pulling their resources and their finances and making the same sacrifices as part of the same struggle for economic prosperity in Europe. And then we had, of course, predating the campaign, the rise of English nationalism, probably epitomised through Nigel Farage, a very close friend of Donald Trump, who actually spoke at Trump rallies. They wanted the hardest of Brexits, and we were going to be the victims of that. Because the hardest of Brexits means that there would be, actually, a lot of them favoured no deal. And I don't understand why, because even economists of a conservative bent, and I'm not an economist, but who I wouldn't sympathise with, were saying this is madness. This is nuts to be doing this to be throwing everything out with the bathwater. But the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, Ian Paisley's party, in the general election where the Tories lost out, Theresa May lost out, and she required the support of other parties to remain in power. And so she aligned herself with the DUP. The DUP were in a prime position. And the DUP in that prime position rejected every compromise that Theresa May put forward. They said it with the hardest of Brexiteers. I mean, they come off with things, including the current leader of, of the DUP, uh, Geoffrey Donaldson, who says, I can live with 44,000 job losses. A- another member of the DUP, Nelson McCausland, who was a, an assembly member in the parliament here, he said he would have a Brexit at any cost, as long as we're out. I don't care what the cost is. So that was the psyche of the DUP. Now, in digging deeper, you then understand the rationale. What they hoped for in a hard Brexit was that in order to protect the single market, the European Union would say to the Republic of Ireland, the South of Ireland, you have to stop these goods coming in to the single market. You have to restore the old border around the north. And of course, the DUP would have been in their element because in hardening the border, and there's another element we'll come to in a second, in hardening the border, psychologically, that was creating, that was strengthening the union in their minds. Every difference that they can accentuate and maximise between the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland is manna for them. That's what their strategy was. Now, we were warning. And I mean, if we were we were alerting to this very early on. I mean, if it ha- one of the brilliant political lobbyists was Martina Anderson. Mm. She, was, she had been elected to the European Parliament. She'd served 14 or 15 years in jail in England, former IRA prisoner. And she lobbied Europe in Brussels and Strasbourg, every political party, every group. I mean, she was inexhaustible, incredible. Initially, how they responded to that was the talk of a backstop. And Theresa May had proposed a backstop, which would, would have kept the North aligned to the EU and aligned to the South of Ireland in such a way that it wouldn't, really, it wouldn't need a hard border. And, and in fact, even when I was away, I was in Vietnam and in Hanoi, it was, I think it was 2017, I asked to meet the Irish ambassador there and I had a meeting with the Irish ambassador and I emphasised the dangers of a hard border. Because, you see, say, for example, 
the Irish government said, we can't be imposing a customs border between the North and South. Our aspiration is for United Ireland. The big danger then is that the British government, of course, would have started to patrol the border to stop, for example, refugees coming north. They would be afraid that the south of Ireland would become the landing pad or the, the launching pad for immigrants flowing into Britain via the north. Or, for example, if, if there were cheap goods that could make their way into the British market, they would have then patrolled using customs, car, customs cars. You would have a situation where in South Armagh, which has now got peace, the area is gone. Most of the barracks and all the British army posts have disappeared. There's free movement. You don't know when you're in the north or in the south. You don't know when you're in Monon, when you're in Armagh. You don't know when you're in Fermanagh. You don't know because there's no signs. All the border posts are, are gone. The only thing you would notice is a change from miles per hour to kilometres. Mm. This is what would have happened. Kids go to school on the other side of the border. People work on the other side of the border. Farmers moving this cow from one field that's in the north to a field that's in the south. And it's going to get stopped or they lose your cattle. And people are going to get stopped. Arguments are going to break out. Local communities going to organise a protest campaign against the customs men. Somebody, perhaps dissident Republicans, would view this as an, an opportunity and take a shot at customs men. The customs men would complain, we can't protect ourselves. So the police would come in to protect the customs men. Somebody would take a shot at the police. The police would say, we, can't, we need protection. The British Army could, were on their, would be on their way in. The British Army would say, well, we need a base. And border posts would go up. And we would be back to square one because the DUP wanted a hard border and that would open up the entire conflict again can i ask you so that's the dup psyche on it in your opinion what was the english nationalists that you talk about that rise of english nationalism so within the leave movement personified by farage and others is it that they simply forgot about the north as they can do or is there a deliberate element there where they kind of think this is a, an opportunity to to get rid of this status. Well, there there are many opinions within that right wing English movement. Uh, certain members of the DUP were charmed by certain elements of the right wing, the hard Brexiteers. You know, Ian Paisley Jr. got up and spoke at a rally. He, you know, he thought he was English, and they were all applauding him. And he used terminology like a throwback to 1912, where Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. All this nonsense, and he allowed himself to be seduced by this. But the people with the real power, I mean, there was an opinion poll. I think it was in the uh, London Times or the Observer, and it showed that. I mean, you can dig these figures out, right? It showed that the majority of people in England would ditch the Unionists. Mm as long as they could have Brexit. And, you know, I'm hoping this does have a chilling effect on the unionism of unionists. And they realise that this is their home. We are their people. This is their land. Nobody's trying to undo the plantation of Ulster. What nonsense that would be. So send all the Italians and all the Americans home from North America. It can't be done, you know. You have to reach a settlement uh, with, with real facts on the ground. And that involves compromise. And often very difficult compromises. But at the same time, you have to make sacrifices for the sake of peace. So I think it has had a purging effect on some unionists. The irony of it was, as Brexit was introduced, post offices in Loyalist East Belfast ran out of application forms for Irish passports. There was such a queue for them. I know uh, many, many unionists. A unionist was elected to the Senate an independent unions was elected to the Irish Senate who spoke for mostly from the rural farming, or farming background. And most of the big farmers here for historical reasons would be unionists. And they're going to lose 
uh, cap, they're going to lose all sorts of benefits. British government at the time of the referendum said to them, don't worry, we'll replace them. But that was nonsense because look at the lies that were told in order to sell that campaign to the English people that you know, the National Health Service, we'll be giving the National Health Service 360 million a week that the EU's taken office and never happened. A lot of the, the unionists, I think, have been chastened by the experience. Also, the fact that the DUP, which should have done a U-turn, has decided to stick with this rigid policy. And so there, it has led to divisions within the DUP, but it has also left a lot of people deserting the DUP. So that in the general election last year, the DUP lost seats to the Alliance Party, lost votes to the Alliance Party. And in a subsequent opinion poll, I think it was Lucid Lucid Talk, published opinion poll, the DUP support had dropped to 19% and Sinn Féin's was at 24%, which meant that Sinn Féin's the largest party in the North. And also in the last Assembly election, Sinn Féin came to within one seat of the DUP. So as a result of the last general election, the unionist majority in the North is gone. There are more people who vote for other parties that are either for United Ireland or neutral on the union. And that is a great development. Uh, now, in desperation, there's a lot of demoralisation in the unionist community. In desperation, they've struck out at this, that and the other. You know, they've condemned Brexit. They've had marches opposing, for practical reasons, Boris Johnson adopted what was called the protocol. And what the protocol is, is that instead of the, the having these border posts around the 340-odd border roads, crossings between north and the south, which would have been impossible to police, it was much easier putting the border down the IC because there are only a limited number of ports. You know, there's Larne, uh, there's Belfast, and is there another port? Possibly Kilkeel, and there's only two airports. So it was much easier, uh, practically, but of course, psychologically, the unionists were now complaining, we've been treated differently. They actually are going to court arguing that the 1801 Act of Union, right, guarantees them uh, economic, uh, economic harmonisation with Britain. And of course, the nonsense of that, which they haven't appreciated, is that the Good Friday Agreement amended the Government of Ireland Act and also the Act of Union. So it's been superseded. Uh, and and it's in a way, it's it's quite sad and pathetic the way they're thrashing around instead of starting to think in terms of Belfast, County Antrim, County Derry. This is our home. Not the home counties in the south of England who don't give a damn about them, who will use them if it suits them. And there probably is an element of Boris Johnson using the current unionist protest to try and get a better deal out of the European Union, even though the protocol is set in stone as an international treaty. So you, ha you have that going on. But the problem for the unionists in the making this argument is this. The vast majority of business have adjusted. I reckon, I mean, it was a, a business representative body. I think it's at 80% of the businesses are finding it okay. Although currently we're working in a provisional situation at the moment where the full protocol hasn't been implemented. So we're in a grace period. But having said that, there are companies who have suddenly found a great advantage in being attached to the United Kingdom market and the European Union market and being able to operate on both sides. And it makes the North also attractive to international corporations because here's a, here's a plan, English-speaking, trained, we can get access to the British market and we can access the European Union. So that, that is go over the next few years, that is going to play out to our advantage. And the other thing, of course, is that they talked about this sausage. We can't get our Cumberland sausages because the food standards in England's going to diverse from the very high standards of public health in the European Union. 
And there's also talk of chlorinated chicken entering the market, as Boris Johnson tries to inveigle the United States to do a trade deal with them. People have now started to buy local sausages, right, <laughs> which are probably superior. And also on our shelves, although there was a week or two when there were some shortages of goods, nearly, I mean, Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's and Asda have replaced most of the goods that they required, because a lot of English companies decided there's so many forms to fill in to send stuff to Belfast. Will not bother sending them to Belfast. But that vacuum in the market has been taken up by Marks and Spencer's in Dublin and by Asda and Lidl, 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 right? And they've been sending the goods up. And so when we go in the, in the, in the Sainsbury's now, we see everything. We nothing, there's no shortages. And this is a problem for unions as well. The protest hasn't got substance behind it. Now, it has anger behind it and faux anger. But it hasn't got substance behind it. And the longer it goes on and succeeds and embeds itself, the more difficult it becomes for the DUP to move it aside. So you don't have a crystal ball, right? I know that. But looking forward, what's going to happen? So like, say, 10, 20 years from now, what does the United Kingdom look like and what does the island of Ireland look like? Well, potentially Scotland could go its own way. And interestingly, you know, the Brits says, no, in the first referendum, the Brits says, you know, you're free to do this. It's democratic. And then as the vote, the sentiment for independence rose, even though it was eventually lost, but not by a great deal. But as the sentiment for rose, Britain then started to threaten. OK, there'll be border posts between Scotland and and England, you'll not be able to use sterling. You may get your own currency. And it's really interesting. Britain, though, appears to be such a, you know, avuncular, all these people who really love the, 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 the you know, Scotland, Wales, and, you know, you've got the Prince of Wales, and you've got the, the houses of Edinburgh Castle, you know, all historically, what a lovely place and nation we are, even though they're not a nation, there's three separate nations. But you see, when it comes to somebody having a change of mind, and you scratch the Brits, it comes the nasties. It comes the brutal people of old who went round this world raping and pillaging and dominating people and boasted that the sun never set on their empire. And at heart, that's what such rulers, imperialist rulers are. And that has to be overcome. So in 10, 15 years' time, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen. Climate change alone is going to change the political landscape and what, how governments react to it and what, what they do about it. We don't know what's happening there except it's getting worse. On the political landscape, I, I'm quite confident and I'm quite patient. I mean, I know people say, oh, well, is it going to be United Ireland in five years or ten years' time? The difference between post-Good Friday Agreement and what the nationalist community has achieved and before Good Friday Agreement was that before we were vanquished, we felt second class, we had to struggle for everything, we were humiliated, our language, our music, our culture our right to march, our right to vote, our right to be represented on the media, all that was all negative and it was all a struggle. Post-Good Friday Agreement, I'm very comfortable. The state that I live in is not the state that I grew up in. It has changed. Now, it hasn't changed enough. There's more to be done. But as a result of the peace process and the reconciliation process, I have sat down and spoken to loyalist paramilitaries. I've spoken to RUC men. I've spoken to former British soldiers including some who came from the loyalist community. And we have talked about the conflict and how we can ensure that it's never repeated 
on our children and grandchildren. I actually, the RUC man who arrested me, I've been out to dinner with him and he's been to West Belfast. He's been to events that I've organised, like Scribes at the Rock. That is a very, very important exchange. And the unionists and loyalists, you know, complain, oh, the niceness, we're now the second class citizens, the niceness are getting everything. But actually all that we're getting is level playing field. We're not looking for privileges. We're just looking for equality. And no one should be afraid of equality. And of course, the problem is that the, the state of Northern Ireland was set up as a basis of inequality, a sectarian state based on a sectarian headcount where sectarianism was instituted, where discrimination was practiced at the heart of government. And that's what we're undoing. And in undoing it, the place then looks like it belongs in the United Ireland. And that is our objective. What I know with a certainty is that Britain had no right to be in Ireland yesterday. It has no right to be in it today. And there's no right to be in it tomorrow. So as a Republican, as an Irish Republican, as a person who wants an independent, a free Ireland, I want an end to British rule. And that isn't an end to unionism, which obviously considers itself pro-British. The unionists are Irish, or some of them wish to call themselves, if this is part of a transition, psychologically well and good, Northern Irish. So it's a question of us building trust. Sinn Féin is in government, in Stormont, which was a hell of a thing to do because it symbolised 50 years of us being second-class citizens in our own country. And yet, in order to build good relations with unions, Sinn Féin took its seats in Stormont, ended its policy of abstentionism, recognised the judiciary, recognised the PSNI, went along and met the British Queen, whom the unionists identify with, has appeared at Cenotaph, commemorations for the First World War dead, which, again, the unionists were very close to. So we've made a lot, a lot of gestures towards the unionists community. Some of them recognise it. Some of them despise it and reject it. Some of them see it as a Trojan horse. That's understandable from where they're coming from, but it's the right policy. Armed struggle, there's no room for it. That's why dissidents are totally and absolutely wrong. I mean, they're ineffectual, but it's also immoral because they're going to kill people and they're going to send people to jail and there is no hope of their activity changing the situation. You know, we have changed the situation. We It has turned around and even unionists and even British politicians see where the tide is going. And the tide is flowing towards an Ireland, a single Ireland, made up of many different peoples, many different cultures, but it's going to be a single Ireland. See how it's configured politically? That's okay. I can live with that. See if it means for a time, or for a length of time, that a parliament remains in the north, and there's a parliament in the south. As long as their joint activity represents sovereignty of the Irish people, I can live with that. Obviously, to put on my old cloth cap, I would prefer a 32-county democratic socialist republic, but I have to win people over to that view. Uh, but in the meantime, I think there are small victories to be won. I'm not going to do it now, but I think I would love you to quote from a member of the ANC, who a white member of the ANC, Albie Sachs, who lost a leg in an eye in an explosion carried out by the apartheid forces in South Africa. I read his book when I was in prison and I sent it out to Jerry Adams in 1991. And it talks about compromise. It talks about, you know, you can go on forever without actually achieving your objectives. But if you pocket small gains in between times, you can achieve quite a lot and you can ultimately win in the end. The year before, because the pandemic was last year, last year Albie Sachs was given the lecture at Fell and Fubble. And he got up and he turned around and says, you know, I was very proud to read that an IRA prisoner you know, read my book and singled out this piece of, and, and, you know, and sent it out to Jerry Adams. And it's almost as if it became part of strategy. I went up to them after this. That was me who said that. That was me who wrote that piece <laughs> with you. And we had, went out to dinner together. What a lovely man. He's now a judge in South Africa. Well, what uh, a lovely, lovely man. But if you get a chance, 
I think you should use that. Quote. I will. I will. So in all your years of negotiating with the British in your various roles in PR and, and whatnot, you surely came across sound out ones as well. And is there a favourite Brit that comes to mind? <laughs> Are there good Brits? Well, I mean, a, a Brit, you know, a, a Brit is a pejorative term. I mean, although we were the first to use it, they later quite correctly adopted it as a term of endearment. So now you've yeah. got the Brit Awards, right? And all, and people will say, I'm a Brit, you know, I'm a Brit abroad, I'm a Brit in Spain. Unionists don't like to use the term Brit mm. because they say, well, we're Brits, but they're not Brits. We use the term Brits. We're talking about establishment people or military forces associated with the British Army based mainly in England. That's what we mean by Brits. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you're putting me on the spot. I mean, certainly Jeremy Corbyn in the early days, whenever he was first elected, he came over here in 1983. Ken Livingstone, who was the chairperson of the Greater London Council, also came over here and broke the ice. He was the one who declared in 1982 that the British government needed to negotiate with the IRA, stop the bombs in London, negotiate. We're going to end up talking to them anyway. That was his attitude, and boy, was he right. So, I mean, I met, I met obviously loads of English friends. I met loads of English people at Glastonbury, and we ended up, you know, camping together, and people coming over here and visiting and having long-term friendships. I have several former British soldiers have become friends and have come to Belfast when they're drinking together. They lost friends to the IRA, and I lost my comrades to them. I also remember the, the detective who charged me with conspiracy to murder and Larry membership and kidnapping. After I got out of prison, my wife and I were in a restaurant and he came into the restaurant. He said, I have a present for you. And he wanted us to sit down with him and his wife. And I hesitated. Now, this is going back before I really built up relationships with former loyalists and for former British soldiers and RUC men. I said, look, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll see you another time. Because in the back of my head was the fact that our dead, they have an existence looking down on us. RUC dead and IRA dead and Republican dead and civilian dead. You know, oh, look at those two. You know, it's all hunky-dory now. You just can sit down, have a glass of wine, have a meal together. Meanwhile, we died. And that was sort of in my head. I later came to terms with it. And then he gave me the present that he had. The present that he had was when I was on trial, I took the witness stand. And I was, it was really difficult two days. But because photographers and cameras weren't allowed in the court back then, this is 1981, there's a court artist who does a sketch of you. This policeman, Tim McGregor is his name, he went out and bought it or got it and kept it and then presented it to me. Now, I have to say, uh, whenever I was in the witness stand, I was 39 years of age and in the portrait, I look 69 years of age. <laughs> it's not you so, with the hat, is it? Is no, that no, no, oh, no, yeah, no. Yeah. No, that's a recent one. So <laughs> this portrait is up in the loft along with Dorian Gray. Right. right? Uh, that gets short. <laughs> but I mean, they have it. And someone said to me, unkindly, no, that was a trophy. That was his trophy. You know, but wow. I prefer not to think that because he went out of his way to keep it and to, and to give it back to me. Yeah. So I consider it to be a gesture. A positive gesture. In terms of Englishmen, I mean, I mean, of course, a lot of people who aren't English but who are Anglo-Irish. The lead singer of Daxi's Midnight Runners, uh, Rollins, what's his, I can't remember his first name. He came over and we, we had a drink together and discussed things. And there's been lots of people come over but have come over anonymously, probably because they're concerned about being exposed or being accused of being a traitor to the cause. So that doesn't really answer you. It does. It totally answers. You gave me loads. I mean, I'm just touching on the idea of um, republicanism or anti-colonialism being conflated with anglophobia, which is another lazy kind of thing that you get online, that just because you're maybe sympathetic to the struggle or, or were participating yeah, well, in the struggle, you that see, you're anti-English. Well, the interesting thing is, Jay Adams' surname, Adams is probably Scottish Presbyterian. Morrison, Scottish Presbyterian. Somebody along the line jumped ship and turned Fenian. <laughs> 
turned Catholic. <laughs> uh, but all of my, my granddad Morrison fought in the First World War. He joined the Second World War. My own father joined the RAF towards the end of the Second World War. My uncle Willie was in the RAF. My great uncle Paddy fought in the First World War. My first wife is English. Um, we were married for like 18 years. My two sisters are married to English men. Most of them, the Morrisons, live in England. I grew up with pop music and Coronation Street. That was the cultural influences on us. Okay, so Danny, well, thank you so much for your time and just coming towards the end. And I just want to ask you a quick kind of lighthearted one insofar as I find you very funny, particularly, well, pr- well, particularly in person, but my first introduction to you was, would be on Twitter. Has being funny ever saved your life? Uh, well, first of all, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I mean... Uh, well, I was I was being I was arrested and been interrogated for seven days by a senior detective in 1978. He eventually charged me with conspiracy and IRA membership. Of course, I kept quiet during the interrogation. But he pulled out a cigar and started smoking. So Georgia called him. I says, George, can I have a cigar? He was at that stage. He was orgasmic, and uh, <laughs> absolutely. And he pulled out and gave me a Ritmeister cigar and lit it for me. And then thinking that. Danny was going to confess, so I just sat back for the next half an hour smoking the cigar, and he sort of was—he was really upset, so he was. But the, but there's a follow-up to that story. George Caskey, you call him, Detective Inspector George Caskey. So there's a follow-up. I, I mean, I, we were arrested all the time. So at one stage, I'm arrested, arrested illegally. They used the Prevention of Terrorism Act to arrest me. They should have used the Immigration Act because I was accused of helping Martin Galvin come into the North in breach of an immigration ban on him and speaking a march in West Belfast. A march which, by the way, they shot dead a 19-year-old man, John Downs. I'm driving down Beachmont Avenue with two kids in the car. British Army stopped me. They arrest me. Leave the two kids, underage kids, like in the car on their own. Take me to Grosvenor Road barracks where I'm brought in, interrogated, and I keep, keep quiet again. When they release you from a barracks, they're supposed to clear the ground so there's no other policemen around that you can identify. But they made a mistake and they released me. And as I'm walking out of the yard... George Caskey is carrying a bowl of Waterford crystal and putting the key into his car. And I, he looks around and I says, well, George, what about you? And I bent down, you know, as if I was reading his registration number. And he says, oh, I told the wife I was going to change this car anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we said, we said, cheerio together. But then after that, he was involved in my arrest in the 1990s because he, whenever I was getting sentenced, he was in the in the court there to have a good smile at me, a good laugh, you know. <laughs> but all's fair in love and war, as they say. <laughs> well, on that note, Danny Morrison, thank you so much for your time and for, as I say, once more, making me feel very, very welcome in my now adopted home of West Belfast. You're very welcome. Hi guys, what did you think of that? Very interesting thing on the Brits, I thought. Brits is an interesting one, isn't it? I know a lot of English people that are comfortable with the word Brits and use the word Brits. As Danny rightly points out, I think it's a little bit more pejorative when it comes to unionists. They don't like the use of the word as much, maybe. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, phone in. But I always think it's interesting because I remember during the summer there, I I tweeted something about Brits. Uh, you know something about I think during the hassle during England games and I said Brits but of course as Danny points out when we say Brits here in Ireland we kind of mean either the authority figures or the kind of the harder more nationalistic side of England little Englanders I suppose that's what we mean by Brits but then I had a day of Scottish and Welsh people by the way Scottish and Welsh people who are pro-independence 
replying going, don't be tarring us, so I have the same brush at all way. And I'm like, how have you taken offence to the use of the word Brits when you don't consider yourself Brits? I've never heard you say that you're a Brit. You say that you're Welsh, you say that you're Scottish, and you say that you want independence. Could the independence-orientated good people of Wales and Scotland please ring in and explain this to me? I actually genuinely don't understand that. Like, you're not a Brit, but if you hear Brit, you do see yourself in it. And then you differentiate between yourselves and England. Is it? Is that the thinking? Talk to Teg. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that. So concludes the Republican section of my podcast. We now move to the nationalist section of my podcast. And before you start whining again, going like, where's the unionist? Where's the unionist? There's bloody three at the end, mate. Leave me alone. Bet you wish you were here.